All right, welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode 23. Uh, this is the first non-one-on-one interview podcast of the year, 2020. It's good to be here. Uh, unfortunately, Ash won't be able to join on this one because of technical issues, but we've got uh, myself and, and Wolf here. Hey, good to be here. So, uh, you know, this week we'll be talking about Seth Largo's article in earlier in December that, that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet called The University System Isn't Going Anywhere. And basically the idea of the piece is a kind of corrective to sort of like overly uh, bullish accounts of the university system's decline. People look at a lot of the the news articles coming out of you know, this debacle, that debacle, uh, you know, skyrocketing student debt, the price is going way up. Asian admission scandals at Harvard, uh, you know, admissions that are, are essentially bought, uh, in effect. Um, and in general, like massively declining, uh, standards of education, even at the highest institutions. Um, and also the number of schools that are folding now, especially privately held ones. So, Everyone's looking at this and saying, uh, you know, given these trends, given the scandals, this system has no more than 10 years left, 20 years left, or even less than that. And they're thinking of what could replace the thing entirely. Um, and Seth is essentially saying that since they're these sort of like occupational industries or, or like certification um, companies that have arisen to sort of peel off parts of the university, like computer science, for example, like these computer science boot camps, those sorts of things uh, are not actually touching the thing that the university is doing fundamentally, which is uh, kind of giving a, a grant of, of status, of priestly status to graduates yeah, elite so, status. Elite status to graduates such that, that they can then operate at, at the highest levels of society, which isn't to say that, that everyone who goes through there uh, it's, it, it, it can do that or does do that. It's more like necessary but not sufficient condition and then not even technically strictly necessary uh, since it's the case that every so once in a while you'll get someone without a bachelor's degree yeah, but getting I, there. Yeah, but I... I've joked about this. Basically, um, a bachelor's degree is the new citizenship. Like, you, you know, in terms of like, what is the classical definition of citizenship, right? It's a member of the political community. There's someone who's sort of allowed right. to speak on political matters. They have the right to be taken seriously to some degree. They're allowed to like hold office and, and hold jobs and so on. And, you know, you see actually all of these these functions being taken more and more under the the like do you I mean have they a can hold jobs they can hold jobs just not certain types of upper yeah. middle class no, jobs right, right. no I mean of course of course you can always hold the helot jobs without being like to, to use sort of Spartan terminology without being actually a member of of the society uh, citizen but um, yeah it's just like the, the university thing the, the the degree is increasingly like oh well this is what grants you the right to be taken seriously this is what allows you to be occupying real jobs real offices um yeah so it's like somehow they've ended up in that business so we have the shift of of the underlying realities of what these different pieces of paper actually mean 
I, I just found that interesting. Yeah, so in a sense, you know, there's a tendency to look at, at, at the Constitution or, or look at civics textbooks or, or Wikipedia on, on what your rights are and, and what government is and, uh, you know, who is a citizen. But then <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you actually, this requires an additional step on top of that, that's the sort of stated reality, but what's the, what's the actual reality and how should we reassign terminology to, to fit that? Yeah, or, or more like, like without getting into reassigning terminology, it's like citizen in the United States has come to mean a certain thing. And like there's this other thing that is what the Greeks would, or whatever we're talking about. And that's actually, you know, potentially that it, insofar as that's a natural category, it now runs under this other name. But anyways, the the university system. The wait, university wait, wait, system. I, I, Okay, okay. You want to you want to chase this threat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One sec. <laughs> okay, we'll get okay. we'll get back to the main thing. So it's true that so it's not the case that it's some kind of Greek city state where yeah, obviously uh, not. <laughs> yeah, like it's not it's not that object, and it's true that America people, is five Greek city states, not <laughs> people, one. <laughs> people can't. People without uh, bachelor's degrees can still vote, obviously, right? Yeah, but what does that mean? Exactly. So what does that mean? Uh, in a sense, you could say that because they have no influence, this is this is maybe stretching a little bit, but not not that much, I think. So if you look at, at um, turnout over the last, you know, some decades of elections, the very rural turnout is not that high. And the reason for that, and, and, and it came out recently with with, with Trump and that was unanticipated very much so and so they, they do have the right to vote but why haven't they been voting oh because they know that well or they at least believe that their vote is irrelevant and doesn't matter and that's because the items on the agenda the existing coalitions that determine party policy at the highest levels, the candidates that are run, they don't have any say in that process at all. Zero say. And so they might have the formal right to vote, but they're not a, a real participant in the polis in the sense that they might have a, even a small chance at influencing sort of like that selection mechanism on the agenda level. Yeah, and but even even like to get into sort of like the actual mechanisms of of democratic, so to speak, feedback into the system. Uh, you know, you have what three hundred million or probably like two hundred million nominal voters, um, and but you know, in a first past the post system, where you know there's like a, mostly people are in these strongholds, and there's a few people who are in these swing states. Um, the votes mostly don't matter for the, for like each individual person. Um, so it's like, if you're sitting there being like, how do I influence my government? It's like, well, you actually don't. Um, and yeah, not, not only do, like, <laughs> do you not, it's even if you can, you still don't. I mean, yeah, it's generally... like even, even well here. Yeah. And then, and then to continue the thought experiment, it's like, okay, well, even if you can elect a guy that is your guy and not the other guy's guy, uh, well, what can he, what can he actually get done? And then also how did, how was he selected? Right. People like, if you look at the democratic accountability literature, you'll find that people generally, because they can't, 
they can't keep track of of um, policies, how they work, whether they work, and who should be assigned uh, uh, blame or praise for them, like who's who's actually responsible. And yeah. so because the, the sort of like good epistemics are sort of like not accessible to regular people, uh, partly because of, of sort of like a, a time issue. Well, and... it's just like you can't, it, 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 there's sort of this idea like, oh, well, we're going to educate the population and then they're all going to be good democratic citizens able to hold the government to account. And, and like, you know, putting aside the actual power dynamics of whether it's possible for the people to hold the government to account, um, it's just like, like you said, there's sort of a cognitive specialization, right? Like, do you actually want to allocate everyone's attention and time to this one task in society? And, you know, there are some, some crazy people who will say, yes, in fact, you do want to allocate everyone's attention and time to this one aspect of society, which is choosing leaders. Um, but like the vast majority of practical people are going to be like, yeah, that doesn't, that's not my business, right? And not not in the sense of like, oh, I'm choosing not to go into that, but just like, look, the 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 place my bread is buttered is like, I'm gonna go pick up that guy's trash, or like, I'm gonna go solve this math problem, or I'm gonna go build this technological system, right? And and it's just people's cognitive specialization is into something other than ruling, and and this idea that you're gonna educate everyone into a cognitive specialization of of rule is just kind of weird to me. I mean, it would be a bad use of, of, of 330 million people's time. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a terrible use. It's like, I, I mean, actually, to the extent that, that America does allocate that time and attention to politics, it's an incredible waste, right? Like, I remember in 2016, as sort of the most recent one, or the most recent example, just like how much the world ground to a halt while everyone just like yeah. focused on this big stupid zero-sum battle and then like got really mad about the result and like did nothing for weeks where they just like yell about it at each other on twitter and stuff it was it was shockingly wasteful it was like why can't we all just kind of do our real work i maybe i'm being too um dismissive of the whole process but um it it, it seems like there, there must be a better way but anyways, like getting back to the citizenship question, it's like the actual reality of how these things are influenced and done is you have these highly privileged people running around in institutions, holding positions and building networks and being taken seriously um, and all of that stuff. And, and, and then, you know, they build these power networks and then those are the things that actually influence this and that. Um and, and being the kind of price for being taken seriously in that stuff um, is to a first approximation, like, are you one of the educated people? In other words, do you have a bachelor's degree? Um, and so that's why I quip that like citizenship is, or, or like bachelor's degrees are the new citizenship. Um, but I, I don't want to read too much into that. I think just think it's kind of like a funny quip as a, as a sociological observation. All right. Shall we get back to the article? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about universities. Okay. The university system itself. So there was another question in the article about an article that Perry Glazer wrote in November 1999 about online education. And, you know, there was a prediction in there that essentially professors would return back to the medieval state 
of you would you know you would have there would be these fewer in if there would be fewer institutions and more academic entrepreneurs running around uh just wandering all over the place setting up uh classrooms wherever and students would just drop coins in their hoods yeah well, well, well the se- se- setting up setting up um yeah, like in, in the medieval era, it's you have a bunch of independent scholars running around and the students pay them directly, yeah, dropping coins in the hood and so on. And then the internet, modern kind of um, analog is uh, these, these, you know, people on YouTube or in these like massively online. Yeah, there's, there's tons of online courses. courses now, tons of online courses, but essentially none of them are being done by academics. Yeah, yeah. So that that's that's this interesting. Yeah. So so uh, Largo looks at at this prediction, which is okay. The education system is going to become more medieval with these more independent um, teachers and so on running around. But then he says, okay, well, in retrospect, that has sort of happened. You do have a lot of people like selling courses online, uh, but they tend to be in the practical skills, not in academic stuff. And the few professors that are involved, guys like Jordan Peterson are sort of um, in, in some way like the exception that proves the rule or, the, or they're, like there's something about them that, that's like they've almost been sort of exiled from the university or, or they've, they've left, gone rogue. They've gone they've, rogue. They've left to pursue something like quite different. Um, and you don't, what you don't have is actual kind of professors defecting uh, to a more entrepreneurial model from from uh, kind of the, the cushy high status professor job at the university. Well, it's not necessarily cushy, right? You find uh, that we have a, a large glut of of sort of like underemployed academics who are in adjunct positions or jumping from postdoc to postdoc to postdoc, and even still they they have a tendency to not want to sort of like do the academic entrepreneur thing. I think there are several reasons for this and it goes even beyond the article. First, a lot of the, if you look at, at personality selection, especially into the humanities, I think there's not a big overlap there of people who are super entrepreneurial. I think, I think the, the major, the people with major uh, entrepreneurial personality traits often do not find themselves getting advanced degrees in, in the humanities. So there's, there's sort of like personality trait sorting going on there. Yeah, maybe. Um, That's just, that's, I don't know for sure. That's kind of just my, yeah, yeah, no, this is some hypotheses we can throw out. There's, there's almost a demand thing, like coming back to the university as citizenship thing. I think, I think Seth Largo gets at this in his article is like, there, the demand for university is inflated like far beyond um, what you might expect on like a pure, just the utility of the skills level. Thus, like, you know, let's say you're some adjunct professor and you're like, you know, you're thinking, well, this is, this is not fun. I want to go and actually teach some people and do a good job at it and get paid for that. And I know that I'm more talented than the system is recognizing or whatever. And you go and try to do that and you go out in the market and you try to sell this humanities content 
Um, and well, it turns out no one's really interested because the only reason they were interested was for course credit. The only reason they want course credit is to get their piece of paper. So right, they right, can right. Be a that, citizen. <laughs> that gets back to the, the second point, which is that it's actually extremely difficult to do. Not like, because when you're running these courses, yeah, well, just the logistical difficulty of actually being an entrepreneur. But I mean, additionally, like the, the demand is not there and right. And, and like, so the university is just like fake demand environment where this demand is induced by, uh, essentially like wide scale, not, not only policy, not only do you have to develop marketing skills, website, course, delivery, social media, you know, you have to be a public intellectual and get your name out there. Uh, then you actually have to produce like people aren't are because they're understating the level of of prestige and grant involved in the whole process they're not able to separate what students would actually pay for without that yeah um and so yeah uh, and then, like what people will actually pay for without that like let's let's think of my like examples that i've seen it's like all right people will pay for like dating advice people will pay for uh like internet viral marketing advice people will pay for style advice um stuff like that where it's it's essentially like these very practical skills very closely connected to the immediate needs of the person um in their life and that's kind and of inimical to to the humanities right so how yeah, would you yeah the humanities is is i mean Again, coming back to the citizenship thing, like the humanities is like, okay, well, we're, it, it's the liberal arts, right? The arts that, that make you free, that make you a real sovereign um, member of, of a society in the sense that you are able to navigate that thing as a first class agent. And so that's, you're, you're, or that's, that's at least the historical. So, so a lot of things need to come together for you know, an academic entrepreneurship version of the humanities to work first, you need the students who say, okay, I'm smart enough to recognize that whatever it is, I feel like I should be getting out of the humanities, I'm definitely not getting anywhere close to the potential of that in my current university, even if it's say an Ivy League. And then second, you need that sort of like unicorn professor who's willing to uh, give up status in the university right and to be so extremely good uh that it in in a cross-domain way at all of the practical aspects of delivering the course and getting known but also has to be sort of like orders of magnitude uh better at teaching the humanities and delivering the genuine content that can actually be there mm -hmm. compared to your actual universe uh, an average university professor in the humanities but if that's the case why is that person not a tenured track professor already, right? Yeah, I mean, if you actually do want to teach that stuff, well, there are institutions that teach this stuff and it's like not right. that hard for someone with that level of talent to get in there. So that what this means then, I think, is that uh, the only way all of these conditions are met is if this a academic entrepreneur is just so hated uh, by everyone in academia that he's been pushed out or exiled or yeah, she but, but, but then, of, but then of course, somehow not quite, uh, not hated quite enough that, that the rest of society won't, won't take them either. 
Um, Agreed. Yeah. Like like so a guy like Jordan Peterson is sort of an example of this. Though yes. He's sort of doing more motivational speaking than like actually teaching the humanities. Agreed. Um, and but you know he's he's edgy but not that edgy. Right? Yeah, and I I think what's interesting is that uh, when I look at people watching Jordan Peterson, it I get this impression that they're listening and, and watching to, to feel his energy and to sort of like take in the cadence of, of, of his delivery and the words. And, uh, and it's the content, if you ask them to, you know, he talks about Jungian archetypes in the Bible for three hours, and then you ask someone afterwards to summarize it. And, you know, they'll say that was so good. That was so good. Did you have any takeaways? Can you summarize anything? Did you come into come to any new conclusions, observations, anything? And and generally the answer is is no, um, but they loved it nonetheless. And and that's also because it's it's you know it's not for nothing that people talk about Jordan Peterson as a yeah, father I mean, figure. I mean, right? He's he's this sort of like yeah, he's a spiritual father figure that in a way just likes. He, like most of his shtick is like signaling being really smart and competent at this stuff and then giving you permission to be normal, right? Yeah. Um, like giving you permission to clean your room or something. It's not just permission to be normal, but but sort of like people submitting to the good intentionality that's coming through what he's saying. Yeah, maybe. Which is that of sort of like, a, you know, a benevolent father or something like that. And people, you know, have this idea that what he's saying is is actually good for them and coming from a place of genuine authority that they can respect. Like, like whatever that is, it's not the like humanities education that no, my, it my, is not. that my mom got at Harvard. Right. And, and like, you know, like when I, when I think about like, how can I get a humanities education on that level outside of that system? It's like, this is just not going to happen. Like I, I'm not, I don't have the time I don't have the institutional support. I don't know like what to chase to like even read the right books. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, and, I think basically it's a whole, like the system, that system does not exist at all right now. And no, I mean, well, I don't know, but for, I mean, may, maybe not right now, maybe not for anymore. it to exist, but it you know, existed in the seventies. Th there just aren't enough customers. You know, there aren't enough. Oh yeah, outside the outside the university, certainly does not exist outside. And there are not enough talented people to build this thing from the ground up. If you're viewing it, and they're viewing it purely from um, sort of like an economic motive, yeah. as in like the opportunity cost is sort of off. Because if they're that talented, you know, they could be making much higher income elsewhere. Yeah. And there's well, no this, doubt about it. This gets back to like Seth Largo's account of the original purpose of universities and why they're going to stick around, which is universities originally and ultimately are about elite families sending their kids to be educated in these, these subjects that actually prepare them for power in a literate and uh, complex society, right? The idea was, okay, well, suddenly there's, there's now this realm of law, of rhetoric, of literature, etc., and we need our kids to be powerful in this area. We need them to be competent at playing those games so that they can rise to the top in that new system. And so the, these medieval parents would send their kids to be tutored by these, uh, you know, these big brains uh, who know all this stuff. And um, 
and, and they would thereby gain the the human the skill like let's say just in the humanities the liberal arts um they, they gain these skills and this knowledge to kind of operate on that level and so if you think about like what is the actual value of the humanities or of the liberal arts or something it really is uh it, it's like a higher level of consciousness which really reaches its practical utility not in like oh yeah i work at like a factory job or a barista barista job or something and i like like reading these books its practical utility is i am in the game of power and i'm going to rule and it's a complex society and so i need to know like all of this cultural depth all of this historical depth uh all of this anthropological depth like understand these bigger things so that I can, um, uh, you know, manipulate them to my advantage. Um, and, and so it's like, it's kind of a pre-scientific body of, of almost like engineering knowledge about human society, right? If you don't know this stuff, you're going to get screwed. If you do know this stuff, you're going to be able to do well. That is the idea of the humanities. And if you look at the demand structure for that, well, there, first of all, there is always going to be demand for that because there's always going to be people who are going into that power game. Second of all, uh, that's never going to be very large demand uh, in terms of um, like numerically. And, and third, um, there's currently a highly entrenched system of institutions that provide precisely that demand plus a bunch of prestige and status. Um, and those institutions are the universities and that core purpose is definitely not going to go anywhere. And as long as they have that core purpose, uh, they're going to be able to have that core status. And then they're going to be able to leverage those things into uh, a wider influence as well. But it's really pinned on that, that core thing of like the university, like there is demand in society for the education of elites. And um, there is always going to be that demand. Um, and whoever gets to do that is becomes very powerful and, that, and that's really what the university is so even if there's going to be some hiccups or or contractions or drastic changes in how these things work um th that core demand is there and so that that's an additional point that that seth makes that i that i found compelling it's like okay let's get into what this thing actually is and why it's going to stick around and i, I thought that was a good answer yeah, I like to note that that over time, of course, uh, individual kings have lost their powers, countries have come into existence and faded out of existence. And then you look at some of these universities, they've been around for a very long time. They haven't lost any of their powers. In fact, they've they've gained a lot of powers um, and they no longer require uh, assent by the king or the pope. Uh, and so you have these institutions that essentially amount to a rival base of power in a society and they they produce the next generation of elites. But in America, in North America, maybe even in the Western world generally, something interesting has happened, which is that, okay, maybe the, uh, the top universities are where, where elite families send their children. But even the top universities... If you look at it, and, and people have seen this before, this isn't anything particularly new, but it's not that surprising to point to entrance tests or uh, a syllabus or coursework from 100 years ago and to look at the, 
the absolute decline. It's it's startling the decline there. I think in in quality. I think part of the reason is probably the GI Bill. That that yeah, absolutely might have been the beginning of the end. Although I I couldn't say for sure. This is just again we're in hypothesis mode here. Um, so basically, every time you have soldiers coming back from war you need a way to reintegrate them into society and essentially our way of reintegrating them was to give them a leg up in in the sort of credential game and so the, the you know the solution to that there maybe there could have been a better solution but this is the one that they arrived at at the time which was, okay, we'll give them a fast-track ticket to middle-upper class and we'll pay for it, okay, and so... Yeah, and, and we'll send them to live in the suburbs where they can't cause any trouble. Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's a separate well, issue. <laughs> yeah, that, that has its own problems and mostly for the veterans themselves. But um, at this point, you kind of start getting the idea that, okay, if this is a ticket to the economic good life, as opposed to preparation for um the commanding heights of society across various domains then you get sort of a a weird cross-purpose mixture and 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 the institutions become a little bit confused and the professors become a little bit confused and the syllabus starts looking a little bit different every year and then suddenly uh suddenly you have I don't know. I mean, it's not very hard. It's almost kind of bait at this point to cite the various articles showing, you know, the the kind of um, there's a particular genre where, you know, imagine, you know, you know, we're in, I don't know, 20 AD or something. And, you know, some there's some desecration of the temple or whatever, and, and it's a big scandal or whatever. And that's kind of the equivalent of what we're seeing now. It's an entire genre where people will write about every single bizarre, strange thing that happens on campus because, well, campuses mm-hmm. matter. And we have a vision of what they sort of used to be or, or could be at their, you know, theoretical best. And then they do these sort of like comical things that to everyone else seems bizarre. But on campus, based on internal logic and, you know, social circle opinion is actually quite normal to do. Um, And again, everyone becomes confused and everyone's freaked out at this desecration of the temple. Um, But a lot of people think that's just the next iteration of the thing and that's how it should be. Um, And so like, we've got a big sort of weird scramble that we don't really know what to, to, to do to deal with. We don't really know how to fix it. And Again, the university is not something that you can just go in there and restructure like a startup or a company. Yeah. So so if I can give my, my sort of own account of what I think has happened there, like riffing on your GI Bill comment. Sure. Um, like there's two big changes that I think have happened, like from from sort of the model that I described uh, that, that, that Seth was kind of laying out originally of university as the place where the elites send their kids to be educated in the actual skills of power. Um, the, the two kind of big changes that I think have happened since then are 
or, or like from that baseline are kind of like a mandarinization and a democratization. And I think so the, the mandarinization might, might come first. Uh, I'm not sure, but mandarinization is what I mean. Like, I mean the focus on the entrance exams, the focus on like systematizing this, this kind of like status printing, like where, you're going to the university. It's not just like, oh, you went to Harvard. Your parents must be powerful. You must have be, you must be educated in like the actual arts of power. I should take you seriously. But you went to Harvard, or and and you have a a PhD, or you have a a, a bachelor's degree. That me like that's not just a um, a thing that we learn to respect. It's a thing that we're almost sort of mandated to respect. That it's this this kind of status. It's this paper that says you you mean something um and as they focus more on um that kind of credentialing um and subsequently the entrance exams because there's huge demand for it outside of the people who need those skills practically um like like if it was only practical demand it would be like whatever man the rich people can spend whatever money they want to send their kids to get these practical skills like who cares right um, they're, they're just practical skills, but the, the fact is they become much more than practical skills. They've become, again, this like more elevated form of citizenship. Uh, and, and then we have this idea that it should be this meritocratic thing where it's done by entrance exams and so on. Um, and so that's what I mean by Mandarinized. It's about entrance exams and like mandated status, very much like, like kind of, uh, classical Chinese bureaucracy. Um, and then what's that, what that how that interacts with a kind of a liberal society like we have is, is well, now you have this like sort of elite with this printed status that the, the status like doesn't necessarily have any connection to any underlying reality. It's just these people are the anointed, uh, the educated, and like they're clearly more competent and uh, doing better than everyone else. So now we get the idea of expanding the franchise. Uh, and that's where the GI Bill comes in. It's where like massive expansion of universities come in in the latter half of the 20th century, where suddenly the idea is, well, what if everyone goes to college? Let's educate everyone in, in university. Um, I think give, we've ended give, up oppressing everyone. We're a yeah, large I know, fraction I, it, it's, of society instead. It's, it's actually, it actually ends up being extremely wasteful, but it's this hyperinflation, right? It's a hyperinflation of status credentialing um, as a result of like, the, the thing decaying to be just status credentialing and then interacting with kind of liberal and egalitarian uh, social norms. Um, anyway, so, that, so that's, that brings us to the situation we have now, which is this, it's like we've got these systems that can print status um, and everybody gets some, uh, or, or not everybody, but like increasingly a huge number of people um, who may be like in a natural sense that's not their vocation and it's actually wasting their, their time. And, and, um, you know, when they hit the job market, it's not actually going to help them that much, except that now they and can that's be taken why, a little bit more seriously. That's why I'm, I'm glad. And I think the university system in a sense should be glad, at least the people who, who want it to return to its core mission, which is all of these vocational programs, whether it's boot camps or, or coding boot camps or trades or stuff are, 
are peeling off the things from the university that probably shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, like the ideal situation, as far as I can tell, is like go away from this Mandarinate model and and make it just entirely vocational training. It's like, okay, it's vocational training and it's not as much credentialing. I think the credentialing thing um, is actually like weakens society a lot. It makes society a lot more tracked and uh, risk averse. And, and generally it's just a bad way to structure things. I think it should be much more organic in which case like vocational training of the type we see in computer science where it's like, okay, you're gaining some network, you're gaining some mentors and you're gaining some skills. And then you go out and apply those skills on the market where, you know, the employers only care what you can do, not who you are, what pieces of paper you have. Uh, that seems like the best model, like actually top to bottom, like, you know, that's, that's the best for trades. That's the best for engineering. And that's the best for actually elite formation that, yeah, that in the fact- school, like the elite schools should be just vocational training for elites. But of course, that requires that we acknowledge that there is such a skill set as uh, as elite stuff and that there is such a thing as an elite. In fact, I want to talk about computer science education for a second, because in some senses, uh, various university departments will provide a markedly worse product because they don't really have too much pressure to uh, produce students that can then uh, be productive or, uh, you know, be able to justify their investment because it's sort of like a, a bizarre mix of status and practical skill going on there that the students end up having to leave leading more on, on status than the actual skill. Whereas right. if, if sort of like a, uh, a coding boot camp couldn't teach its students anything whatsoever, uh, it just, it would just cease to exist. And you see in a bunch of actual computer science departments, they have kids learning computer science via multiple choice and group projects. Yeah, and basically, group projects, in other words, like laundering, laundering one guy's effort through everyone else. Yeah, or two, or or whatever. It depends yeah. on the size of the group. But you know, I have friends who, in fact, did did go through that, and that was their description of of why there were group projects and. And how a lot of the computer science education ended up being sort of, sort of like technology awareness or something. Yeah. Maybe and, and and to expand that logic, like the reason the the reason they have the group projects is they've let in a bunch of people for political and financial reasons, um, who really aren't uh, aren't going to do well in computer science, and they need to keep the grades up so they don't just keep flunking people. Um, right. And for various reasons. And so they need to find ways to make make sure everyone passes, even if there's only like, you know, 25% of the class is actually competent to be there. Uh, so they put, they put group projects together. It's like, okay, it's four people working together. The one guy or, or the one person who, who's, you know, in that quarter of the class that's actually competent to be there does the, does the real heavy lifting the other ones coast on their back. Everyone gets a good grade. Everybody's happy in the thinking. And in some sense, some of the top university computer science departments, they are very well aware of this. They're not stupid. So what they've done is they've decided to uh, make several degree tracks 
within the department. So they're, they all right. count as CS in a technical sense, but one's going to be like technology. One, one's, the, one's the real one and one's just the credential. Yeah. What, one, is, one is, yeah. I mean, we don't really need to get into it, but it, you know, it's apparent that that's compensation for inability to, it's compensation at the department, departmental level to control for inability to uh, change the overall structure of the thing. It's kind of t uh, making the best of uh, a bit of a rough situation. Yeah, I mean, so getting back to, to Seth's article... We, we do keep getting on tangents, but I think... No, some the, of the tangents are great. The tangents some are of the great. tangents are great. I just want to bring this one back. Um, I, I, it's... So he's, yeah, he's going through arguing, like, here's why the university system's going to stick around, and here's its actual challenges. Um, and so he, he does acknowledge um, a lot of the currently existing challenges faced by the system. Like, you know, in, in academic, in the academic side, uh, you know, we've got, like, the replication crisis and generally, like, increasingly hostile environment in which to do research uh that, that makes it difficult um and you know you've got these this student debt and uh tuition crisis you've got the the universities have become unsustainably set up financially because of the uh foreign students that they've been depending on all this kind of weird stuff that's going on and then all these small colleges going bankrupt uh for various reasons um and it's, it's so there's there's sort of like this time of turmoil within the university system, but like I, if there's I, nothing if there is nothing that can supersede the Western university system in terms of status manufacturing, then no matter how far it falls relative to anything else that could possibly generate status, it will still be superior, and so it yeah. will still continue to exist. Yeah, and, and sort of I, one of the parts that I found the most interesting was uh, so he brings up the possibility of like, well, what if people actually just decide to build that alternative and they build this new system that's not the university system that's going to be, um, you know, it's not going to have its pathologies. It's going to be doing something different. It's going to refocus on whatever the core thing actually was, um, you know, basically elite education for the purposes of wielding power, I think is the actual core of the thing. Um, though people, that's my opinion. Uh, a lot of people have different ideas about what the university system is about um, or ought to be about. Um, and, and so you imagine these people like rebuilding this thing and competing with the university system on that level. And one of the interesting ideas that he alludes to is well why if you're that competent why bother doing it outside of that system why not just go in or like at least retroactively when you've accomplished your your sort of revolutionary mission or or as you're accomplishing a revolutionary mission you can just take the brand of the universities you say we are actually a university we're just better than the other universities or we're just re we're just changing some things about how they work, and it keeps that legacy of status intact. It keeps um, it like it it suddenly there's this huge tailwind behind your thing where before you had this huge headwind, um, and and so I think 
one of the one of the predictions we can make here is like okay well if there is a big refounding and the university system as we know it collapses and something else comes in its place um that fills the same functions the functions are necessary in society to some degree um that system will probably just wear the brand of the university system and inherit a lot of that institutional structure and a lot of that prestige um, so, so i found that interesting one Let's. I want to talk about the the. I have some ideas on on what the bottlenecks to a refounding would be. First, um, it's almost a bit late in some sense to simply sweep up the the people who are sort of like representing the true tradition of the humanities and and whisk them off to a different and better new institution that that we found in you know six months from now or something like that. I, I basically think that humanities instruction and the granting of PhDs has, has declined so much that I'm not sure that, that there are, that there's anyone or there, that there are more than a, even a handful of people who are capable of actually teaching the humanities at the level of quality of a hundred years ago. Yeah, like maybe. I, I I basically am not convinced that 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 even exists anymore. Yeah, so, but but something exists, right? One, well, so one of the one of the bottlenecks that exists there is simply like the the lineage of of master student, the genuine tradition. That's that's needed for a refounding. I don't know that we have it. And so one of is the that bottom... needed for a refounding, a refounding in, in many ways, like by definition is yes, when, yes, when that, you've that's... lost that and actually you need someone to like build a new one. Right, right, right. That's what take, I mean. It just takes the, uh, we could the get back there. The we could get back there, but it would require identifying a lot of uh, good talent, convincing them to do this project instead of their traditional project through a regular university track. Um, and then continuing on that trajectory yeah. for like 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, to do, I don't think people understand this. People always talk about, oh, we need a uni new university. We need this and reform in academia. Academia is a very long, storied, powerful, gargantuan set of institutions you're not going to just come in and disrupt it like that's just yeah, yeah. not how it works you're not just gonna be okay some, if you're, some jerk if you're from going silicon valley is going to build a website and it's going to disrupt <laughs> the whole thing. it doesn't yeah. work like that man that's stupid okay um basically if you want if, if it's if you view it as your mission to do something important in this area you're basically going to have to dedicate your entire life to it. Yeah, and not no, just, it's, it's a very deep vocation. Not just you, but a bunch of other incredibly smart people as well who could be doing something else and making more money doing something else. So you have to convince them that this is, you know, uh, if we're going to make like, you, you basically have to convince them that, okay, you could make, uh, I don't know, $500,000 a year writing algorithms somewhere. Or, uh, you know, you could you could uh, contribute to the creation of a new set of institutions that will last for the next thousand years, and this is the start of that. Yeah, or, maybe they, maybe they won't do that. Maybe yeah. they won't do that. But that's not a bad pitch. Yeah. So I, I mean, you make it sound so bleak, like nothing. This could never happen. But actually, I think it's already happening. I think what 
in the sense that there are stirrings um, where there's a lot of people who are realizing, okay, we need, like, again, get back to that core purpose of the humanities. The core purpose of the humanities is vocational training for elites. Um, there's a lot of people who are thinking like, okay, the system is kind of broken. Um, we're going to need people who know how these things work and know history and know humanities and know culture to be able to rebuild it when that time comes because it does look like it's coming. And so there's a lot of people thinking along these lines and they're doing various things. They're, you see people preparing in various ways on various strategies, some of them more, more uh, effective than others, I would say. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot of like underground activity in this area, even of very smart people trying to study the humanities, like people forming book clubs um just just to read these classics and so on people emphasizing it to each other people realizing that it's important etc um i think all that is happening and it just like what it's going to be like is there's a much larger kind of um structural set of changes coming through and whatever the refounding of the universities is, is going to participate in that large structural change. Now, it might be that these things, like, I, I'm not saying like, oh, these underground book clubs are going to somehow scale up into universities. What I'm saying is a bunch of the people formed through this process will be involved some way or another um, in whatever that change happens to be. And it might be the final change on the universities is actually a top-down thing. Like, um, you know, if you look at how kind of, science and and academia as we know it in in the more broad sense was formed you have you know these key moments like well after the english civil war charles ii um charters the royal society um uh, with a bunch of the top kind of intellectuals of the day um who interestingly double as an intelligence agency um, at the same time, but, but they, um, you know, th these are these men who are, are trading knowledge back and forth, trying to understand the world. And, and he gives them this Royal charter that makes them suddenly super legitimate. Um, and, and then suddenly every, every guy who used to be a pirate is now, you know, out there collecting specimens for the, for the cause of science, because it's actually just more interesting and, and has more status attached to it now. Um, and so you get these moments of top-down reform where some huge patron like Charles II comes in and says, I'm going to sponsor this new way. Um, and I think the university right. system has changed a, a number of times in that kind of manner where kings have added or removed their charter. Um, and I think some of the more recent, like like I, one of the things that came up when you mentioned that the universities have only gotten more powerful, it's like, yeah, in a way. But but more recently, if you look at the difference between, you know, the vast majority of universities and, say, Oxford, um, Oxford has a level of autonomy and medievalness or, or sort of like early modernness that is quite different from everything else. Everything else was kind of shoehorned into this this um i'm not i i haven't studied this stuff in detail but i think it's like the research university model uh kind of borrowed from germany in the 19th century 
Um, and so they all got, they all got kind of changed. They got restructured in accordance with this thing. And then we have stuff like the GI bill where suddenly, you know, you're not just some kind of out of the way institution that's training, uh, these elites anymore. This is now your, the core credentialing and intellectual authority apparatus of society. Um, so you get these big changes, but they're often coming on the heels of, um, a big political change, you know, the end of the civil war, the restoration of Charles II, or in the case of the GI bill, you know, the new deal, the world war II, that, that era, um, the civil war reconstruction in the 19th century and, and the various, uh, drama in Europe around the same time. Um, so I think, and I think we're sort of like heading into another of these moments where there's going to be some political turmoil. There's going to be some confusion about what's going on. Something's going to emerge from it. Um, and a lot of the people who have been thinking about this problem, um, are going to end up refounding these institutions in, in a new form, but they are going to be in some sense holding on to large parts of that tradition. And so I think, and this is the picture of, that basically like Seth has convinced me of that. I, I think this is sort of how it's going to go with respect to the university. Assuming that there's even that um, patron involvement, there's still, of course, the bottleneck additionally of uh, pedagogy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. Is and that can you actually right develop the intellectual in traditions? the current system? The way that people are trained is, is kind of very ad hoc. Right, every university is completely different. Maybe a couple undergrads get an opportunity to try out some time as as TAs, but usually TAs are grad students, um, and they kind of, you know, they're they're just tossed into the tossed into the deep end of the pool, and you know, in some sense, maybe that can pr produce something interesting, but the results are so very varied. Um, and there's kind of little standardization and little agreement on what actually works. And so at the same time, at the same time, there's almost too much standardization and so on. Like, I, I think this is, again, related to the sort of GI Bill expansion after the war. Um, I've heard this described as as the intellectual apocalypse, where before the war, you look at the character of the thing and how they describe themselves. And it's like, okay, it's the fraternity of physicists. It's just a bunch of guys who are interested in this sort of, some of them as a hobby, some of them have, in, have like institutional positions. Some of them have patrons and they're just like a bunch of people kind of trying to figure this stuff out. It's all relatively informal. Of course they exist with their traditions and so on, but it's not this big formal institution. Whereas after the war, it all gets formalized, institutionalized and expanded and bureaucratized. And it becomes um, it becomes the thing you described with like, you know, there's this this like highly formalized structure of like tracks and positions and so on that people are moving through, where at the same time, the actual pedagogy has has kind of collapsed. The actual organic reality of the thing, you know, is is existing tenuously in the cracks where a few people are holding on to the flame trying to like keeping the thing going on an individual basis, but the, the institution itself has become a monster. Right. I, I mean, maybe I'm being too pessimistic. Like, I, I think this is this, like some people would describe it this way, but I think like the thing does still work sort of, but, but there's, there's elements of this to it is, I guess what I'm saying. 
Yeah, and 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 so when I look in in America and I look at what sports coaches can do as opposed to professors, I'm very astonished and it kind of shows you where some of the priorities are. Sports coaches at at the higher levels in America tend to be quite good. They're very good at motivation. They're very good at at pulling uh, sort of like every bit of effort they can from the people they have charge over. They're very good at sort of like pushing people to the limits, at command, that sort of thing. And the equivalent doesn't exist in any sort of way with university professors at at least not anything that scales. Yeah, um, and that's that's uh, that's interesting related to another problem in education, which is um, I think it's called Bloom's two sigma problem, which is where it, so in kind of the industrialized education system that we have, you run people through this standardized process where they get a bunch of lectures, then they do a bunch of tests. They only sort of understand, you know, some fraction of what they're taught. Um, and the outcomes are, are so-so. And then if you actually focus on the individual students and figure out where they're at in their learning and then address the weaknesses in the individual student and like work through it that way with a very like one-on-one uh, tailored process f- uh, aiming at mastery of the particular concepts and uh, filling in the gaps in the particular student's knowledge, y- you get... Um, this isn't necessarily like more intensive even, it's just a different way of, different way of approaching it. Um, and if, if you do that, you get the result that the people in the mastery learning sort of one on, um, with someone on one time track perform on average, like, uh, two standard deviations better than the people in the sort of industrialized model. And so, you know, one of the big differences between um, the sports coaches and a lot of what goes on in the education system is the sports coaches are dealing with the peop- with the players as individuals. If one of the players has a weakness, they go and try to address that weakness. And, um, and it's, it's like intensely... Uh, individualized for mastery and so on. And I think um, there's you know, also in the, in the education mean, system, hold on, let me, let me finish. Yeah. Okay, in okay. in the education system, it's, it's like, there's supposed to be, especially in the grad school stuff, there's supposed to be that, that like mastery learning aspect to it, but I'm not sure how much that actually obtains. And so I think that's like perhaps a, a part of the difference is it's related to like, whether you're doing mastery learning or this industrialized model. Yeah, first, it's like, what I'm not saying is that professors should become, uh, you know, drill sergeants, swim coaches, you know, give me a thousand lengths, right? That's not what I'm saying. But it's it's notable that there there are very different reasons for, for like, the incentive structures there. I mean, with with sports, you know, usually there is sort of like, there, there, there are discrete competitions, there's an understanding that, uh, you know, the player is responsible for making the coach look good and the coach is, is tied into the success of the player, right? They're not entirely separate things. And this relationship sort of is said to exist among, you know, grad students and, and their, you know, say advisors, but not, not really, not 
quite in that way. And with some of the the most talented academics, uh, in fact, it's even the worst because they have so many demands on their time that maybe they'll see, uh, you know, their grad student once a month for maybe an hour or something like that. And so that that is really not any kind of good pedagogical environment for teaching that PhD student to carry on the tradition, the rigorous tradition of teaching the humanities. So then you have to wonder, what do you do with the sort of like research pedagogy split? Like there, there is there's something interesting there. I'm not entirely sure whether it should be split, but that, that does seem to be happening. I mean, the main focus is, is not necessarily on being the best, uh, teacher that you can be. That's, that's really not, it's, it's more about the superstar research, which of course is fine. And a lot of the research needs to be done, but I, some of it, I mean, if you look at the replication crisis, most of it's fake, right? Sure. So, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting question because how, how many professors have as a conscious choice just devoted themselves to, to pedagogy, you come across, you get maybe one of those professors in your university career, basically, or, or two, something. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually have a sort of non-standard, um, experience in this in this regard like I, I didn't interact with the traditional university I did something much more like focused vocational training that resulted like so in, in engineering I'm, I did mechanical engineering um, in engineering there's this interesting backdoor which is the fundamentals of engineering exam uh, in the United States gets you the certification without any of the like you don't actually have to have gone to university um, to get an engineering certification and which is like, I forget if that itself is equivalent to a bachelor's degree or if it's like, there's some other way to do it. But the way it ended up for me is like, I went to this kind of technical college where the universities had no, or the, the professors didn't really, they, I don't think they were obliged to do any research. They were just there for teaching small class sizes um, you know, you, you could get one-on-one time with the professors, you could argue with the professors and so on. And we did a lot of that. Um, and, and that, you know, it's, and so that, that actually worked really well. And I, I really enjoyed having those, uh, those sort of focused professors and it, like, there wasn't this kind of like trade-off between research and, and teaching. Um, and then, uh, the way I, the way I, it was like a new program at the time and we, we went and took the fundamentals of engineering exam to like get the, get the credential stamp of like, yes, we actually did this. It's actually worth a bachelor's degree, etc. But anyways, that's like a, a, a kind of a different model. I thought it was better. Um, but yeah, I mean this, in this whole, like, you know, research versus pedagogy thing, um, like we need to be really rethinking a lot of how this stuff works. I remember like we've had a lot of discussions with our friends about, well, how do you rebuild this university system? Like what does the new thing actually have to look like? It's cringe. No, it's cringe. And I I, like, I want to, I want to make this point. It's like you tell people, okay, we're going to replace the university system. And it's like, okay, a new unit, a new institution 
that does things like differently from the ground up and and like aims at the actual need which is like okay we need an official truth system in in uh, a society you need to be able to train elites you need vocational training and you need this credentialing thing and these things may or may not have anything to do with each other right and then and then you have you know people people start coming up with ideas and the ideas are like well all right well we'll have professors and the professors will do some combination of research and teaching in like big class lectures and you're just like dude you're just it's the, just the same thing that we've got no we have to actually rethink this we have to go beneath that like what are the fundamentals of what we're trying to produce here and how do you arrange the like information flow logistics and the social logistics to efficiently produce that outcome and and i think like there's very few people actually thinking through that question even among the people who are trying to think about it they're just like oh how do we uh you know scale this with the internet or how do we you know just reproduce the thing but without this one part that i don't like um I, we need more fundamental thought in the area and and um i'm excited to see if anyone comes up with anything but like i haven't seen anything good yet <laughs> i remember one class was basically everyone kind of just sitting there and the professor reading off of, you know, w Wikipedia pasted onto PowerPoints. And that's all it was. That's literally all it was. Awesome. There, there were no analytic <laughs> models created the, the, out this of is the, the height. This is the height of pedagogy. It's just the height. I mean, and he just stared at the PowerPoints. He, he, he didn't even really look at the students either. It was absolutely incredible just absolutely incredible anyway that and then and then you know i had a couple professors who you know had philosophy classes that were completely life-changing i mean i wouldn't maybe life-changing is too strong they were very 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 stimulating and i i enjoyed them a lot um and you know if if that could have been rec replicated for my entire undergrad. I mean, I couldn't say enough good things about it. You know, you have these, mm -hmm. you have a couple good professors, but certainly that's, that's really not, not the whole, that that just isn't what your experience is. Anyway, so we've covered more or less what Seth had to say, and we've made a lot of comments and tangents upon it. Um, I, I found it to be a very interesting article. It, it definitely like added a little piece to my thinking, which is a, a more fleshed out argument about what's going to happen with the university system and why. Uh, that's that's actually a little bit kind of meta contrarian um, as compared to a lot of the sort of standard mainstream contrarian knowledge uh, uh, about what's going to happen with universities. You know, all this like, oh yeah, it'll be disrupted and disintermediated, blah blah blah. But but Seth made the good case that no, actually this is a fairly fundamental aspect of society as we know it and it's going to stick around. And as long as it sticks around, it's going to continue to hold the mantle of, of the, the university tradition. And it's going to continue having this commanding status. Um, and, and whatever changes do occur are going to be sort of within that constraint. Um, but, but actually large changes are possible. So anyways, I, I found it interesting. It was, it was good. I, I basically agree with 
almost everything in the article. And then this podcast has been mostly about expanding on different tangents and different aspects of it. I, I think the, the arguments about how it survived, you know, mass population collapse, the rise and fall of countries and kings and popes, all of that is, is quite compelling when we're talking about, I mean, actually, here's an interesting question. Does the university outlast the Catholic church? That is an interesting question. Um, Cause it's like, in some sense, both of them for advanced complex societies. Well, actually the Catholic church is, mm, Ooh, this is tough. Ooh, this yeah, is no, tough. it's hard. I mean, so, so the Lindy bet, we can start with the simple ones. The Lindy bet, you know, if you take the Lindy effect, which is longer, older things are likely to stick around longer the newer things are likely to die faster. Um, the Lindy bet is of course that the Catholic church will last longer um, because it's been around for 2000 years. The university system has been around for a thousand years. Um, but if you look at sort of the fundamentals of, you know, its relationship to society, we see like the core thesis of the universities is very much intact through all kinds of political revolutions we could imagine. Whereas the Catholic church has been, um, you know, unplugged from its core relation to society in what it was. It was the sort of like imperial bureaucracy of the, uh, among other things, of the medieval world. Um, and nowadays it's this like kind of pesky thorn in the side slash recuperated arm of the global order um and and so it's like it's not necessarily going to receive its patronage from um from the empire whereas the universities i think are going to continue to receive their patronage from the empire but then institutionally speaking the catholic church is a very strong institution um and so they might find ways to exist outside of that patronage structure it's so yeah it is a very interesting question i'm not sure i can immediately predict because if, if, if you look at who's been pulling out like i mean i don't this is actually a whole nother complete episode so you know what i'm not even going to indulge this at all I'm not oh, even going to indulge man, you're gonna this leave, at all. You're going to leave me on a cliffhanger <laughs> like that? Yep, yep, that's that's the end. That's the end. It's an hour 11. Maybe we can do this next time. Maybe people can email in and, and give us their thoughts. Um, and then maybe we can talk about this another time. But uh, I think for episode 23, we're going to call this uh, a wrap. It was a great discussion. And uh, for everyone else listening, we'll uh, see you guys next week. All right, that was a lot of fun. Thanks, Joe. See ya.